Hope y'all are doing well. If you have a Bible, you can open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Uh, we have been going through this letter for the past few weeks, um, and we're doing a chapter at a time. So uh, you can open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. That's where we'll be today. I'm going to go ahead and pray, and then we will uh, stand and read chapter 4 together. Um, so let's, let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this time that we have together, that we can look into your word. We pray that you would send the Holy Spirit now and superintend these moments so that uh, our hearts can be taught by the truth of your word, that we can be encouraged, that we would be convicted where we need to be, and Lord, that our, our love and our affection for Jesus will be enhanced as we look into the good news of Christ and what he's done for us yet again this week. And hopefully, God, as we see and think about the love in which you've loved us, we would be reminded of your goodness and equipped again to, to be sent out to live on mission for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can go ahead and stand. Uh, we'll read this together. I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And you can say, you will say, thanks be to God. First, uh, one of 1 Corinthians 4. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will break <clears throat> to light the things now hidden in darkness and would disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from the Lord. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of, of one against another. For <clears throat> who sees anything different than you, what do you have that you do not receive? Uh, if then you received it, why do you boast as if you do not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all. Like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute to the present hour we are hungry and thirst we are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless we labor working with our own hands when reviled we bless when persecuted we endure when slandered we entreat we have become and still are and are still like the scum of the world and refuse to all things i do not write these things to make you ashamed but to admonish you as as my beloved children for though you have countless guides in christ you do not have many fathers for I became your father in Christ through Jesus, in, in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? This is the word of the Lord. You can have a seat. So, as I said, we've been going through 1 Corinthians now. Uh, this is our fourth week in. Uh, and just maybe a quick review. If you haven't been here, I'll give you a, kind of the big picture review. So, this book is really kind of divided into two main pieces. Chapters 1 through 6 is the first section. Chapters 7 through 16 is the second section. Uh, and chapters 1 through 6 are about the things that Paul had heard. If you look at chapter 1, verse 11, there was a lady named Chloe that had written to Paul, and, uh, and, and her people had written to Paul about this church in Corinth. And they had four main issues that Paul needed to address. Divisions or factions in the church, which we've been looking at in chapters 1 through 4. And then in chapters 5 and 6, there's really three other issues. Incest in the church, uh, Christians suing other Christians, and sexual morality. And so in chapters 1 through 6, Paul hears about these things from Chloe's people, and he writes to them in chapters 1 through 6. In verse 7, you can see in chapter 7, verse 1, there's a turn. It says, now about the things you've written. 
And so the Corinthians have obviously sent some correspondence to Paul, and they had a few questions about marriage, about food sacrifice to idols, about the gifts of the Spirit, things like that, if you, if you continue to read through 1 Corinthians. And Paul's going to address those things in chapters 7 and following. So uh, what we've been doing over the past four weeks is looking at that first issue that Chloe's people had written, which is divisions in the church. Now, the first three weeks, as we were looking at chapters 1 through 3, as Paul was writing, he's trying to clear up this, this idea of divisions and idea of factions. If you're not sure about this problem, you can look at chapter 1, verse 11 and 12, and Paul outlines it exactly. He says, for it's been reported to me from Chloe's people that there's quarreling or some kind of arguing uh, going on in the Corinthian church that you, my brothers, among you, my brothers, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Paulus, or I follow Cephas. And so obviously he's trying to clear up that, that you shouldn't have divisions based on which apostle or which leader or which disciple or whoever you follow because that's really making division in the church that are unnecessary and we're all Christ's and we should all follow him. So in the first three chapters, as we've been looking and over the past three weeks we've talked about, Paul's been uh, helping them understand how not to think about the apostles. Now in chapter four, he's going to turn it on its head and say, this is how you should think about the apostles. I've told you for the last three chapters, don't think about them this way, don't think about it this way, don't make them too lofty, don't worship them, don't think they're too great, factions are irrelevant, you shouldn't do this. And he talks about the gospel, and he talks about God's foolishness and God's wisdom, etc. And, uh, and even in chapter 3, he talks about their leadership and how not to think about them. But now he's going to tell you how to think about them. You can see that in verse 1, it's not there in the English, it just says this, but there is uh, in verse 1, before the this, a... a a word in Greek, hutos, or thus, or so then. So based on what we've just heard in the first three chapters, so then, or thus, Corinthian church, this, verse 1, is how you should regard us, those who would be leaders. And so he's helping us say, uh, you've, I've talked about how not to think about them. Now I want you to think about how to think about the, the leadership in the church. Uh, he's going to, it's interesting, you'll see in verse 6, he's going to um, continue this, comparison between himself and Apollos. Uh, and Paul's an apostle and Apollos isn't. Uh, we know in Acts 18.24, Apollos was a very eloquent man that came to the Corinthian church and taught them, and he was mighty in the scriptures. He wasn't an apostle, but still Paul, uh, in, in a lot of ways, puts him on a leadership position in the, in the city of Corinth along with himself. And so he's going to continue to try to help them understand how to think about him, how to think about Paul, how to think about Paulus, and any other leader that's going to uh, come in, in the city of Corinth. Now, I want you to, uh, before we go in, Make sure you're thinking this way, because there's, there's two ways you can apply this particular sermon in chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians today. One, this is how you should think about me, Joe, Jack, deacons, community group leaders. This is, you should want these particular things that we're going to see in this particular text in me. You should expect these things in me. You should want to see these things in me. And if you don't, you should feel absolutely comfortable to come tell me. Um, however, that's the first way, and that's the absolute right application. But there is a second way that I think that's really helpful for you to think about chapter 4 as we look at it. Not just in the light of how I want the leadership in the church to be, but instead of your, look at your own self. How I should live. What are some, since we're going to be looking at what, what are ways we should think about leaders, these are Christian leaders, and these are things that you can think about yourself. You may ascend to leadership in Remedy Church one day, and these things should always, already be put in practice. You may not ascend to leadership in, in Remedy Church, and that's okay too. Either way is fine. It's all up to, up to the Lord. However, since these things are great applications for you to apply in your own life, these things are not like only exclusively should be in leaders, but these things should be in all Christians. Uh, these three things that we're going to see in chapter 4, you, I'll show you the three sections of, of things that we should see in leadership. Think of this sermon in, two, in twofold. The way that I should want to see my own pastors, leaders, uh, and my own church, and the way I want to I live my life. The way I want to try to be a kind of servant, uh, kind of leader, kind of person, kind of Christ follower in, in my own life. So, thus, or so then, the hutas there in verse 1, this is how you should regard us. And the us, obviously, is leaders. And he says in verse 1, and, and the first section uh, the way that you should think about leaders, you can go ahead and put it up. Number one is that you should think uh, as healthy leaders, they should be faithful servants. They should be faithful servants. You can see that in verses 1 through 5. This is how you should think of us. You should think of us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. Now, um, this is a different servant than you saw in 3.5. In, in, in 3.5, he said servant diakonos, and this is where we get our word deacon, and that just means, it means straight out servant, someone who serves. 
this is not the same word here. This is a different servant. This is the word uh, hyper, hyper, hyperetes. It's a new word for me. I hadn't, I hadn't heard it. Uh, but uh, it is nonetheless a, a lowly, lowly servant. So if you're familiar with some of these uh, stories of big ships, you know, where they weren't powered by motors, but they were powered by men. And they had levels and levels of people in the underbelly that would, they were in charge of being a rower and they had, you know, scores of them down there. Uh, the hyperatus is the servant or the under rowers, the one that lowered in the, that rowed in the lowest, lowest, lowest part of the belly of the ship. And his job was, was just a lowly kind of servant, a subordinate, completely subject to complete direction. And his job was to continue to make the ship go forward. And he's saying that this is the kind of person that we should be. We should be a servant, the lowest form of servant, uh, willing to be subordinate and subject to people. This is talking about leaders, willing to be subordinate and subject to people and continually making, um, to switch metaphors, the mission of the church go forward. Uh, But he also says we should not only be servants, we should also be stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, obviously, the mysteries of God is the gospel. The, the mysteries of God is the, what was the mystery that was once hidden, but now been revealed, uh, centering in on the cross of Jesus Christ. And he says we're to be stewards of this. Stewards, this word stewards comes from the root word of house. So oikos is house, and this is a oikonomoi. So this is a servant term, but it's talking about the chief uh, slave of the house. So you've got, your, you've got all your slaves, and this is the chief slave of all of them. So it's interesting that they put these two together, right? We've got the hyperatos, which is the lowest servant in the boat, but he also says we're stewards, which is the chief household slave. This is the person that's uh, in charge or the supervisor over the entire large estate. If the master goes away, he's the one in charge. He's the one that makes all the decisions of the entire estate. He's the one that will be the one that will he doesn't own the estate as the master, as the master is, is gone. He's only the steward of the estate. None of it's his, and he is to steward the estate well. He is to dispense of the master's uh, things in a, in a wise way. That's, that's what we can see when it says that we should be stewards of the mysteries of God. So it's really obvious the connection there is uh, Jesus has gone away. He's the master. He has made his leaders stewards. It's not their gospel. They don't get to decide to change it. They don't get to run it the way they want. They have to dispense of or administrate this gospel uh, with truth and grace in the exact way that the master has told them. And ironically, the truth and grace that they dispense is also the very truth and grace that they need to continue to live. And so this is the kind of uh, contrasting two nouns that are put together whenever we're talking about healthy leadership, is that they should be faithful servants. They should be servants and stewards, and they should be found trustworthy. You can see in verse 2 that, uh, moreover, it is required of these stewards that they, they be found trustworthy. If you're, if you're back into the metaphor, if that chief household slave is not trustworthy, while the master's gone, I mean, he can just steal everything, right? He can just make shipwreck of this entire, I'm mixing metaphors now, of this entire estate. That's an accident, um, but rather cool. Anyway, uh, so... It's absolutely, <clears throat> absolutely important that this administrator, this overseer, this steward, this okonomoi is completely trustworthy. Which means, if you are a believer, you are a steward of the mystery of the gospel. And you have been entrusted with this gospel, and you should be dispensing it freely, trusting and relying on the truth and grace for your own life, but also dispensing it freely. The Lord has found you trustworthy, and you should continually tell other about Jesus. Gordon Fee says it this way. This is really, um, I think, helpful for us all because we all think that, you know, unless I have a a masterful performance and scores of people get saved all the time with the way I dispense the gospel or, uh, you know, I just think. Fee says it this way. Not eloquence, nor wisdom, nor success are, are the things that are necessary for this particular person, but faithfulness to the trust. Faithfulness. We faithfully administer the gospel. It doesn't have to be eloquent. It doesn't have to be with much wisdom. It doesn't have to be super successful. Those things aren't wrong. If those things happen, praise the Lord, right? If you're, if you're eloquent, awesome. That's good. That will help. If you're wise, that will help as well. If you are um, successful in the way that you do this, certainly that's good. But the key is faithfulness to the dispensing or the administration of this mystery of God 
that has been given to us. Now, that's on being a servant in, in those first few verses. And he continues in this next verses, in verses 1 through 5, to talk about uh, judgment. And their judgment, the Corinthian church's judgment of him. And he's tr- going to help them understand that the judgment that they're going to have of him isn't necessarily something that he has to put himself under or even worry about. You can see how he talks. He says, but with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. He's not, he's not trying to put him down. He's not trying to make him feel bad. There isn't like somebody going, ooh, yeah, Paul, that's right. Like, in, instead, he's just trying to help them say, help them see, ultimately, your judgment of me, it doesn't matter. Ultimately, your judgment of me doesn't matter. What matters is God's judgment of me. And so that's what he says. In fact, um, I do not even judge myself. I'm not aware of anything against myself, but, I'm thereby, but I am not thereby acquitted. Uh, this acquittal language we shouldn't confuse and think that he's talking about justification language. He's not talking about his justification. He's talking about his role as a servant to the Corinthian church. So what he's saying is, uh, since I'm not dead yet, I, I'm still a servant or a leader to the Corinthian church. And when I die, God will let me know how I did. But since I'm not dead yet, I don't know how I'm going to do because I haven't died yet. So one day when I die, the Lord will tell me how I did. But until then... I'm not fully acquitted, or I'm not, I'm not completely innocent, or I don't know that I'm going to pass the test. But you can look in the sentence. He says in verse 4, I'm not aware of anything. Right now, my conscience is clear in the way that I've led you. I feel like everything's fine. I don't know of anything. The Lord's going to tell me one day. And that's what he says. Therefore, uh, do not, or that's what he says, but it's not there by I. It is the Lord who judges me. And then in verse 5, uh, he basically tells them, it, it looks, it's really long, but it basically, if you were to summarize verse 5, it's like, stop judging me. But he says this, uh, therefore, do not pronounce judgment for the time before the Lord comes, who will bring uh, to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purpose of the heart. The Lord will see my heart. It's the Lord's job to see my heart. And he's the one that's going to do it. So you don't have to try to judge me. You don't have to worry about it. God's going to take care of that. Now, verse five is interesting because the way that he says it, um, prima facie or on the surface or at first glance or at first blush, you would think that Paul's talking about himself. But it absolutely can be read in such a way that this is something that the Corinthian church should be considering about their own hearts and they should take heed. So he's, he's talking about himself. Look at it. Um, there will be a time where the things that are, that are in, the, I'm sorry, who will bring to light the things that are hidden in darkness and will disclose the purpose of the heart. There will be a time where Jesus will do that. But you should take heed, Corinthians, because the same thing will happen to you. There will be a time ultimately when the judge comes who also looks at your own heart and sees if there's darkness and will know the motives and purposes of your own heart. Now, the Corinthian church think they're great. I mean, we're going to see here in verses 6 through uh, 13 that they think they're awesome. I mean, they are their biggest fans. They love them, me some me. You know, that, that's, how, that's kind of their motto. I love me some me. But, but Paul's trying to help them see you should, you should not be thinking that way. Uh, you should not think too highly of yourself. And the Lord God is going to one day Come and judge your heart. And then when he says, then each one will receive his commendation from the Lord. We should not live for the praises of man. If you receive praises from men about the job you do, then you have received your reward. This is from Jesus. You have received your reward. But if the things that you do, if you're not trying to do for the praises of man, the Lord sees those. And one day, just to use the, the language of Paul here in, in 1 Corinthians 4, 5, the Lord will commendate him. It, it, it's not... That you'll, you know, get to be a deity one day in heaven and you'll get praised just like Jesus. Like me and Jesus, we're on, you know, first place. We both get worship. That's not it. It's the Lord will commendate us. He will, he will uh, tell us, well done, good and faithful servant. Now, Garland, a uh, commentator, Garland, talking about this verse 5 and the purpose of our heart being hidden. He says it this way. God will bring to light what shrinks away from the light. The hidden motives, the good and the bad behind each servant's work. So just examine your own heart right now. You may not be in church leadership. You may be. Examine your own heart right now and ask yourself honestly, ask yourself honestly, where's your heart in regard to serving the Lord? Is it done with good motives? Because the Lord will see this. The Lord knows your motives and they will one day be completely revealed. If you're standing over here and you're like, well, actually, I'm okay because I don't actually serve at all. So I'm not neither good or bad. I'm just praying for the people that are having to think about this right now. Um, <laughs> then you should also enter into the game. You know, don't sit on the sidelines. Enter into the game. Be a disciple maker and watch your heart. Consider your heart. 
and want to, uh, want to strive to live for Christ. So that's the first way we should think about leadership. First way we should think about leadership is that they should be faithful servants. Now, in 6 through 13 is the next section. You can go ahead and put it up, faithful servants. This is foolish spectacles. Foolish spectacles, not glasses. This isn't, you should have silly glasses. Um, you'll see it. I'm going to, it centers in on verse 9. Um, now, I want, I want you to make sure that you're uh, understanding this section as we go in. Paul is going to use biting sarcasm and irony in this section. Biting sarcasm and irony. So, ready yourself for Paul's uh, sarcasm. Now, verse 9 is where we're going to center in. We're going to drive into verse 9 and then look out at 6 through 13 and get the full weight of what he's saying about the, the marks of true apostleship here in verses 6 through 13, which would be uh, foolish spectacles. Or maybe to say it some way that's a little bit more understanding. Servants of Christ, leaders of God, uh, leaders for Christ in the church should, should just expect suffering. They should expect to suffer for Christ. Verse 9. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. That just means everybody. To everybody. We've become a spectacle. And the way that we can say it is like men sentenced to death. As in, we can expect every day to take up our cross daily when it, when it comes to following uh, Christ. Galatians 2.20. For I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I consider myself crucified with Christ. We consider ourselves sentenced to death, therefore it's Christ who lives within me. And so, this is a foolish spectacle. In the world's summation of leadership, in the world's eyes of the way that you would live your life, that's foolishness. That's a foolish spectacle of a way to be a leader. And this is the way Paul says church leadership should look. Healthy church leadership should be faithful servants in foolish spectacles. Let's, let's look at as, as Paul tries to help them understand the entire thing. Um, in verse 6 and 7, he's going to help them understand that it, these servants are to be uh, examples to be followed. They shouldn't be put on a pedestal. I, wor- I follow Paulos. I follow Cephas. I follow Paul, as we saw in one twelve. That's not what should happen. I apply all these things uh, to myself and to Paulos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of what's um, in favor of one another. You shouldn't try to put others on pedestals. For who sees anything different in you? So what he's ho- wanting them to see is don't put each other's on pedestals. Now, I, this is just a side note, uh, but you may be wondering uh, when he says, you may learn by us not to go what is beyond what is written. When Paul writes this, he usually, when he talks about things being written, he's talking about the Old Testament. However, in this particular section, commentators were like, there's nothing in the Old Testament here that he's talking about. So what is he talking about? Is he, what, is he, what is he referring to? Um, it could be just a popular first century proverb of the time, it, but likely it's just a uh, general, general biblical standards of understanding the way God views man and God views leadership, that you should follow them as examples and not uh, put them on pedestals as, as things to be worshipped. I think that's kind of what he's, what he's trying to, when he says, don't we go beyond what is written. He's just speaking in general biblical standards regarding leadership. Now in verse 7, he's going to launch into three questions, which are all easy to answer as no, 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 or, or uh, no one, nothing, and no good. And then after that, he's going to follow it with three exclamation points uh, in verse 8. These three exclamations are a major shift to the irony and sarcasm. Here's the questions. Uh, what do you have that you do not receive? If then you do not, or verse, let's go up, I'm sorry. For who sees anything different in you? Uh, no one. Uh, what do you have that you do not receive? Nothing. If then you received it, why do you boast as if you do not receive it? There's, there's no good reason to boast. You shouldn't boast about anything that you've done. And you shouldn't boast about who you follow because it doesn't matter. Uh, it, leaders are examples to be followed, and you certain, certainly shouldn't be puffed up and proud about it. And then verse 8, um, he's going to launch into these three exclamations. They should be read as, as exclamatory, sarcastic tone when he says, already you have all you want. Now, this is not true. Uh, the Corinthians think this of themselves. They have what we would call over-realized eschatology. They think that the end times uh, and the the wonderful things that we receive in the end times and the blessings that we receive from God when one day we're there, they have them now. Th- that's not true. 
in the eschaton or in the last days or in the, in the coming kingdom, they will, but they don't have them now, but they think they do. They, they have this high view of themselves and the high view. And the irony is, is that none of the Corinthian church that he's writing to were particularly wealthy or royal, um, but he's calling them out on their over-realized eschatology with biting irony and biting sarcasm. And that's okay for Paul to do apparently and not sinful. Um, usually when I use sarcasm, I get in trouble. Um, but uh, anyway... <laughs> That's just at home. Already, you have all you want. Already, you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that you might share the rule with you. Um, this is all uh, ironies. This is all Paul being really sarcastic. And then he says, for. So let's make sure we juxtapose verse 8 and 9 and contrast with absolute care what Paul is trying to do. He's trying to help them realize or see the way they view themselves. He's like, you think you're kings. You think that you reign. You think that you rule. You think that you're already rich. And you're just the Corinthian church. But us apostles, look at our lowly position. For I think that God has given us and us the apostles. Not, not you, the church, which is not bad, but you're certainly not an apostle. He says, but we are like all men sentenced to death. Huh. Putting those two together, that certainly doesn't make sense, that you have this over-realized eschatology, that you think you're rich and you're kings and you're reigning. And, but we, the apostles, the leaders of the church, we're the ones that have become a public spectacle to all the world sentenced to death. I wonder how that's working, Corinthians. That doesn't seem like really that's the plan of God. He's, he's being obviously uh, putting his current experience against what they see, helping them realize that they have not become these things yet. One day they will, but they should not think of themselves in this way. And th the way that they view, view their leaders should not be uh, too lofty. So in verse 10, Paul is going to continue in sarcasm. Uh, and he's going to say, we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. Now, in one sense, he is fools for Christ's sake um, for in the world's eyes. But he's not at all in, in, in God's eyes. So the way he, these, these first statements are is the way the world thinks of Paul. That's, that's what the world thinks. But actually it's not. And then the second part of the statement is just him being sarcastic. So we are fools in Christ's sake in the world's eyes, but in the, God's eyes we aren't. But you are wise in Christ. You're not. We are weak in the world's eyes, but they're really not in God's eyes. And you're strong, but they're not. You are held in honor, but we are in disrepute. You can see how he, how he keeps trying to pile it on, helping them realize that they have this um, wrong view. And then in verse 11, he shifts to a, a, a short summary list of his actual sufferings after he's tried to help them see with sarcasm that they really aren't that and that they have an overrealized eschatology. He launches into this interesting little short list, and we'll, we'll look at the longer list in a second, but the short list of uh, his present situation. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. And he's talking about church leaders those that would be apostles or even, even Apollos. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We're poorly dressed. Nothing nice about the way we look. We're buffeted and homeless. We, we look like homeless people. We smell like homeless people. We, we don't get to shave. We don't have the nicest stuff. And we labor working with our own hands. Now, I read 11 and 12a, and I see that this is the absolute present circumstance of what seems to be the leadership in the church. The way that they live is hunger, hungry, thirsty, not dressed well, buffeted, homeless, and very hardworking. Now, Paul outlines uh, in a longer sense, you, and you've probably heard this before, in a longer sense, uh, what are his sufferings. In 2 Corinthians, uh, if you want to turn, you can. If you want to just listen, it's fine. It's in chapter 11. He says this. Talking about the, his sufferings, he said that he's had far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings. Literally, I've been beat up so many, many times, I can't even count it. If I've been beat up once, everybody hears about it, right? And that's never happened because nobody can take it. No, I'm just kidding. Like, because we live in America, right? We live in America. He's been beat up countless, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. I've, I've told you all this several times, but the Jews, 40 was the perfect number. They thought they could beat you to death by beating you 40 times or lashing you 40 times. So they want to beat you to the point of death. 
So they whipped you 39. In their mind, they beat you to death, to the point of death. So they do it 39 times. He said that happened. People hated him so much at five particular times, they in their mind really thought that they beat him straight to the point of death, and then he had this long road of recuperation. Um, and then it says, one, uh, three times I was beaten with rods. We read one of those in Acts chapter 16, whenever we saw when he was in Philippi, and he was wrongly accused when he uh, cast the, the, the demon out of the slave girl. Uh, and then it says, once he was stoned, we saw that in Acts 14, I think he's in Derby. They hated him so much, they, they dragged him out the end of the city, and they, they stoned him, and they thought he was actually dead, and the apostles came around him, and they're kind of standing over him, and he like wakes up, and he's like, all right, let's go to the next city and evangelize. I'm like, oh, man, like, your head's swollen. Um, three times I was shipwrecked, and a night and a day I was adrift at sea. So now we're going to talk about not just the sufferings, we're going to talk about the elements, the actual elements that he's had to suffer. And a night and day and adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, and frequent from rivers, dangers from robbers, frequent from people, my own people, that's the Jews, from, from Gentiles in the city, danger from wilderness, the animals, danger at sea, just the elements of being on sea, danger from false brothers and toil and hardship through many sleepless nights. He's also been hungry and thirsty without food and cold and exposure. And that's all the physical things that he's dealt with. And on top of all that, he says, and I think it's even more difficult, and apart from all these things, there's the continual daily pressure and the anxiety that he feels for all these churches that he's planted, that they would be cared for and loved. Now, that's the leadership of Paul. These are the things that he has experienced. And it says, I want to read it one more time. Just so we've got the full one, now we're coming back to this present hour. We are hungry, we're thirsty, we're poorly dressed, we're buffeted, we're homeless. We labor, and we have to work really hard with our hands. And I look at us, I look at myself, and I look at church leaders in America today, and then I read that. And it's very hard for me to connect the dots. Very hard for me to connect the dots. So, uh, what's the point you're trying to make there, Bo? I think first is, um, I'm not saying that we're supposed to be kind of masochists and just walk out and, could you beat me up please so I can feel like I'm more like Paul. Take my clothes and I'm going to grow a beard and smell bad. I'm not saying that. Uh, I am saying that we should be extremely thankful for the time in which we live. That it's quite an anomaly to most Christian leaders and, and, and Christians in general. And we should absolutely expect, expect verse 11 and 12a to likely happen for us. And not be caught off guard or surprised by it or ticked off when it does. We are extremely lucky to be as well dressed as we are and to smell as good as we do, and to have jobs that don't have to require very difficult toil and labor for hardly any money. We're extremely lucky, and we should expect verse 11 and 12a to happen. And if it does, not uh, buck against the system and be mad at God, but instead have the same kind of posture of Paul, whatever, Lord, whatever. That is foolish that's a foolish spectacle to the world for christians to act that way but the world always thinks that the way christians react is foolish and in god's eyes it's completely wise and so as we continue looking he, he tells us at 12b a clear model of how to respond in a christ-like manner whenever we experience ungodly behavior towards us Whenever we suffer as, as believers, whenever we suffer as Christ followers, whenever we suffer as Christian leaders, here are three things right away, uh, Christ-like behavior that we should model towards them. Whenever we're reviled, we'll bless. When people revile us or people speak ill against us, we don't do it back, we bless. Whenever we're persecuted, when people persecute us for the faith, we endure. We don't get scared and run, we, we endure. And whenever we're slandered, we entreat. Entreat, um, one of the most famous ways in my head, whenever I think of the word entreat, comes from Luke 15. At the very end of the story, whenever the dad throws the big party and the little brother's, you know, having the big party and the, the big brother goes out back and, and sulks and pouts, doesn't want to come into the party because I never get anything. You didn't even give me a goat, you know. Um, and so the, it says the father goes out to the big brother uh, and entreats him to come into the party. Like, 
this isn't coercion. This is, this is love. Like, wouldn't you come in? Your little brother's back. You've always been here. And he's been gone, and his lost soul's now found. And he's entreating him to come in and be a part of the party. It's the same idea when slandered. When people slander us, we don't, we don't yell back. We don't do anything like But like the father, we entreat them. We, we don't coerce, but we talk to them in such a way we help them see the beauty of Christ is something that you should want in your own life. I don't need to slander you. I want to entreat you to believe in Christ the same way I do. So we don't need, we don't need church leaders or even believers in Christ to look like worldly leaders. The way they ascend to their leadership or the way that they maintain their leadership. Instead, we need to be Christian leaders. It's completely different than the world. We are faithful servants, and we are foolish spectacles. And then he speaks in major hyperbole as he finishes when he says, We have become and are still like the scum of the world and the refuse of all things. I mean, this is very strong hyperbole, strong exaggeration. Uh, But it's true before the gospel, right? Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, we're followers of the prince of the power of the air. We're filthy, dirty, scum, and refuse. We are the chief of all sinners. And in the gospel, what becomes true of us when we trust in Christ, Colossians 1, 22, we are forgiven. We are we're without blemish. We are now holy. We are raised up and completely perfect and righteous in the eyes of the Father. And the scum and the refuse has been washed away and we've been expiated or we've been cleansed completely now. And now in the gospel because of Jesus, we're pure. We're completely forgiven. Now, uh, that's the second section of how to view leadership. And if you're thinking, man, Paul, like, bring it down a couple notches. You're really letting him have it. Good. That's what he's going to do here in 14. In 14 through 21, he's going to shift here. And as he shifts... Uh, He's going to be, take more tender tones with them, and he's going to appeal to them in familial language. He's going to use fatherly language towards them and appeal to them and exhort them to want to live differently. He says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed. I'm not trying to hurt your feelings. I'm not trying to, you know, dog you out. But instead, I'm writing these things to admonish you as my beloved children. So when we're looking at leaders, the third one, after foolish spectacles, the third one, would be spiritual fathers. Healthy leaders will be spiritual fathers. You can see that in verse 14 and following. To admonish you as my beloved children, for though you have countless guides in Christ, you don't have many fathers. This word countless, myrios in the Greek, can be translated in three different ways. Uh, numerous, countless, or 10,000. I just found that rather odd. But it's 10,000, and I guess that's, back then, just meant a whole lot, you know. For me, that's like 5011. That's just a whole lot. Like, so it's countless guides. So he's saying you have countless guides, but no fathers. The, the word guide doesn't have a 21st century equivalent. Whenever you hear the word guide, the uh, pedagogos, it comes from our, our, our word pedagogy, which means like to teach. And it's kind of like a teacher, a guide, kind of. Um, but it's, there's no 21st century equivalent to this particular person and their station, and their job they had. So in the, in the first century, the, the pedagogos, the equivalent would be a, a first century person that was a slave, that was by the master, chosen as a slave, to go and was appointed to watch over a child. And his job would be to take this child to school and bring them home again and rehearse and memorize their lessons that they had at school. It, it's kind of like uh, the male version of a nanny. Um, kind of like it. But they were a slave. They were a slave, and they were chosen by the master to do it. And so he's saying you have 10,000 numerous, countless pedagogies, pedagogies. You have lots of guides, but you don't have a father. And every one of us would know. If you've had a nanny, you've been a nanny, or whatever, or you can just understand the concept of nanny, right? That is not a mom. Or this pedagogist is not a father. 
they're, they're replaced. If the master wants to take them out, they can be replaced with the next one. And every child, every child wants their dad to do these things. If they have to have someone else as a substitute to do it for them, they will. And praise God if he brings those things when they need them. But every child wants their dad to do these things, right? And so Paul saying, I was your father. Now this is where it gets really interesting. He says that you were beget as my spiritual children by the gospel. The gospel is the thing that did it. You can see it right there in verse 16. Uh, You became my spiritual child because of the good news of Jesus. For, uh, I'm sorry, it's in verse 15. For, you you have countless guides in Christ. You do not have any fathers. For, I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This is literally... uh, this became your father is the beget language. Beget so-and-so, beget so-and-so. This is beget. So you, you were my spiritual child that was born to me by your belief in the gospel. And if we remember in Acts 18, it's Paul who went, even though he says in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 that he didn't have eloquent speech and that he came in weakness and he came with no power. He preached the gospel to them, we saw in Acts 18, and they all became Christians. And therefore, Paul now is their spiritual father and so paul says that it's through the gospel that i became your spiritual father so i'm not your guide i'm not your pedagogist i'm not your nanny i can't be replaced i am now your spiritual father and so he's telling this for two reasons he's he's wanting them to understand and for them to think of them as a father for two reasons one uh, and you only know this as a dad like when you have a child you understand this as fully as possible He's wanting them to understand just how much he loves them. A dad, it's hard to describe, loves his children more than he can, he can even put into words. I will, whatever is happening to you, I want it to happen to me instead. If you are in pain, just let me take it. If you need my kidney or my liver, or if you just need to live and I have to die, I'll die so that you can live. It's better for you to continue on. This is just the love a dad has. And when you are a dad, you can understand, you, you can conceive of it, but... The feeling of it doesn't happen until you become. When you look at the child and you're just like, you can barely do anything, and I would die for you right now. And Paul's trying to help them understand his love for them. That's the first thing he's trying to do is he's helping them understand that he's their father. But the second thing is, since I'm your father, you should listen to me. You should take heed to the advice that I'm giving you because I'm your dad. I'm not a guide. I'm not your nanny. And you should want to listen to me. So he's beckoning them to heed his fatherly advice. If I had time, I would go to First Thessalonians 2, and you can see some of the language that Paul uses, but I don't. Um, <clears throat> and then here's where it gets interesting, right? He's going to say, uh, I can't come to you, so I'm going to send someone else who's going to be your father through me. So uh, if you know me at all and you see me around, you know I have kids. And two of my kids particularly, whenever I meet someone that I see someone I hadn't seen in a long time, if I have Aiden and Liam with me, as soon as they see them, they're like, whoa, oh my gosh, that's a little mini FUD, like a little smaller version of you. Uh, it's because, you know, all of them end up looking like me. Uh, well, except for the last one, bless his heart. Um, he doesn't, that's good for him. He doesn't have to look like me. But the others uh, do. And so as I'm in tow with these children and they see them, they're always like, whoa, they look just like you. And oh my goodness. Um, <laughs> They also uh, talk like you and have your mannerisms, etc. So uh, in the same way that my children, as they follow me and have to look like me and have to talk like me, and I know that's not the best thing, as, as that's the case, uh, it's because they're my children, right? They're my own children. And so in the same way, Paul's going to say, uh, I'm the spiritual father of Timothy. He's been around me. He looks like me. He acts like me. He thinks like me in Christ. And so if I can't come to you and be your spiritual father, If I'd send Timothy, you are absolutely getting Paul as your spiritual father in the form of Timothy. And so he's going to command them to imitate him, even though he's not there. And he says, I want you to imitate me. And the way that you're going to imitate me is I'm sending Timothy, and you're just going to follow him. And as you follow him, you can be guaranteed that you're you're imitating me because he's my spiritual son. This is amazingly bold language of Paul. I mean, just consider this anyway, to say, hey, you know what? If you really want to be like Jesus, imitate me. Just look at me and follow what I do. You're just like, yes. That's 
some bold language, but very biblical, absolutely biblical. Every single one of us should be bold enough and confident enough in the gospel and pursuing sanctification enough to look at people and say, you want to follow Jesus? Just imitate me. This is Paul. Follow me as I follow Christ. You're going to see it here when he says, you don't have many, you have a lot of guides, but you don't have any fathers. For I became, I became your father in Christ through the gospel. Verse 16, I urge you then, be imitators of me. And that's a bold statement. One that I'm really nervous to try to tell people about myself, right? Like, I wouldn't say that because I know me and whew, like I feel weird because I know me and what if they do? Man, then I really got to get my act together, right? So I understand, right? I understand the, the conflict that we have in, inside of us, but we shouldn't. We should, we should realize who we are in the gospel and to be able to tell people. And if we fail, God's not like you're infuriated at you. That's the whole point of the gospel, right? You confess it, you repent, you realize that you're absolutely forgiven. You tell the person, I messed it up. You can still follow me as I follow Christ. And I'm going to mess it, you're going to mess it, but thank goodness we have Jesus. Let's continue to march on in gutsy guilt, as Piper would say. So um, be imitators of me. And then he said, this is interesting, right? He's not even present. You're going to see, uh, and you saw that in verse 18, some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you and saying I'm not coming, but the Lord wills I'm going to try to come, but he's not going to be able to come. So he's going to say, I want you to imitate me, and that's why I sent you Timothy, my beloved faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ. So if Timothy's there because he's my child, you can follow him, you can imitate him, and knowing that you're imitating Timothy, you're imitating Paul, and knowing that you're imitating Paul, you're following Christ. That's hard to follow, <laughs> but at the same time, amazingly bold, right? Amazingly bold. And he's saying you need these spiritual fathers to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. So let's, uh, let's apply this right away. Between services, Jordan had a uh, uh, really easy, easy way to remember this and a great application for you. So whichever gender you are, write this down. Find a mother and be a mother. That's your application. Find a mother and be a mother. If you're a male... Find a father and be a father. Of course, we mean spiritual, right? We mean spiritual. Find a father and be a father. Find a mother and be a mother. Who in your life can you be a spiritual mother to? Who in your life can be your spiritual mom? Who in your life can you be a spiritual father to? Who in your life needs you to be their spiritual father? And who can be your father? And we can see as Paul wraps up this, he's going to insist on love some are arrogant as though not coming to you uh, but if the lord wills i will come to you and we're going to find out about these people that are talking and their arrogant talk to see if they have any power the kingdom of god is not consistent talk but in power and then he ends with this question where you're just like please let it be spiritual eventually um which do you wish shall i come with you with a rod or the love of spirit and gentleness i, I vote gentleness paul i vote gentleness i don't know about these guys but i'm voting for the gentleness not the rod right let's be sure though like uh, because he's couch this whole conversation in fatherhood if he comes with the rod as the father it doesn't mean he's not loving still loving if i discipline my children it doesn't mean i don't love them it means i do love them so that they'll grow up to be you know not crazy jerks right that they can grow up to know christ and understand the gospel and understand how god deals with them but if i don't have to come with the rod and i can come with a spirit of gentleness that's still love both of them are loving and Paul's still coming to them in a loving way, whether it be with the rod or whether it be with the spirit of gentleness. Now, after reading that, I'm sure they're all like, we vote gentleness, please. Um, so if we're going to, I think, bring this into a, a summary verse, when Paul writes to Timothy, who he sent to Corinth for a little bit of time, and of course, Timothy went to Ephesus as well. Uh, when he's writing to Timothy, he, in first chapter 1, verse 5, he he summarizes what's the aim of the charge of pastoral ministry. We would think a lot of things. He says in verse 5, um, the aim of our charge of pastoral ministry is, we would think, to handle the word of God, to, to call out sin in people's lives, right? That's what he says. The aim of our charge is love. The final 
point, the final destination, the final point of everything that we're trying to do as pastor, leaders, or even believers in Christ, when we are dealing with people, what we're going for is love. And he says, how this is possible? That issues from a pure heart and good conscience. The way that we have pure heart and good conscience is because God gives us that through the gospel. That's why he ends the sentence by saying, and a sincere faith. So faith in Christ forgives us of our sin, gives us this pure conscience, gives us this um, pure heart and good conscience, and now we are able to take up the task of living a life of love, living a life that demonstrates Christ's love. If, as Christ followers, we don't live with love as our key, then this is what happens. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I can speak eloquently and say all kinds of things, and they're all true, but they're not loving, then really, I'm just a big noisy gong or clanging cymbal. You can't hear anything besides just shrill. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so as to move mountains, if I am just, you know, super grudem, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. I'm nothing. It doesn't matter how much theology we know if we don't live out the Christ follower charge as being loving people. If I give away all that I have and I live my body to be burned, if I seem to be the most sacrificial person, person in the world, but I don't have love, I gain nothing. And so this life that we're being called to live as Christ followers, as leaders or just as Christians, is to be demonstrated largely as, as loving people. It's, it, no one has ever loved you, ever, like Christ has loved you. No one has ever demonstrated more love or loved you in a more deep way than Jesus. Because he gave himself for you on the cross. And that's how we're to love other people, in the same way that Christ has loved us. Let's pray.